Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, listeners. Hi, everyone. We are in May, and I just don't even know. April was just like so much going on with like end of year meetings, some people's annual IEP meetings. It just seems like there's been a chaotic like vibe the last couple of weeks. As yeah. We, the end of the school year. I don't know if like our listeners like heard us say, get ready for the end of the school year, because I feel like everyone like is clamoring. Like it's just a mad like dash to exactly. get help or get things done. It's a scramble. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little much, but <laughs> we are still in it and. You know, I think just as always, like that kind of friendly reminder, we might be running out of time. Usually an IEP meeting needs to happen within 30 days. It gets really dicey when you're, you know, in the last 40 days of the school year, simply because there's been meetings that have been on calendar. You know, some kiddos, I actually have an annual coming up in mid-May. You know, some IEP annual meetings are happening at the end of the year because that's when that child's annual IEP meeting Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then we have our transition meeting. So anyone from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school, high school to beyond. And what I don't think families realize is if you're trying to get both teams, so like the elementary and middle school team to be at that meeting, now you have to take double the amount of people's, you know, schedules into consideration. And the last thing you want is to show up at the transition meeting and find out that the new team wasn't invited. So like something to consider if that's where your situation is, please double check with the team. Hey, did you invite the new team? Because there's nothing worse than having in a transition IEP where you make all these plans and then you get to the new school and the new school is like, yeah, I don't know why it was written this way. Like an elementary school was written, writing it for elementary school. Like we do it completely different. Yeah. It's, uh, that's always fun. Um, different teams having different ways of doing things. And, you know, one of the things that we also always say as well, if you have that transition meeting, it's always good to have that 30 day IEP meeting when the school year begins. You know, sometimes you want to let it, you know, give it a little bit of time. You know, have we been two weeks into a school year and have had a request an IEP meeting? Absolutely. Yes. But if your annual is in April and you want to do a little check in, you know, October, especially if you start in August is a good time frame where the teacher is really going to know the child. If obviously any issues have come up before that, you know, request an IEP meeting, but just your friendly reminder. Yep. 30 days from when you request it. We always like to put it in writing and yeah, make sure to send a courtesy email if you don't hear back. But I feel like in the Zoom age, people are better at getting us those dates, right? Because they yeah, can just- I feel like it's easier. I mean, just if your your school is still having the ability, which they all should to have Zoom meeting, that's really right. helpful because you can do it during your lunch break. I think People's availability is much easier, but we're really excited for our guest today. She has been in it with IEP meetings and from our conversation before recording, it sounds like her district is someone to kind of look up to for other districts. They sound wonderful, but we're so excited to have Beth on the pod. Beth, welcome. 
Hi, thank you guys for having me. So we'd love to introduce you to our, our listeners to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about, you know, your experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So my son Cooper was born in 2019. We always like to say he was kind of a surprise from the beginning. We found out I was pregnant like 20 or 36 hours after getting engaged. So like I had just wrapped my head. Yeah. (laughs) I had just wrapped my head around like becoming a mom and then he was born and we knew pretty early on that he was deaf. Uh And so we got his like official diagnosis at six weeks. And then, I mean, we pretty much just jumped right in with early intervention services. We were given a ton of info at the, like the literal place that we got his diagnosis. They were giving us a huge binder and they called the next day. And so since, you know, it's been three and a half years um, since then, and we've just continually been amazed by our school district and the resources here. And it's been a lot of learning for me, you know, it wasn't something I was familiar with. Yeah. How was that? I mean, obviously still, even though born before the pandemic, obviously still mm-hmm. with the pandemic baby, how was that navigating having to have early intervention during the pandemic? Yeah. You know, it's just like a blur to me, honestly, but I also yeah. didn't know any different. It's not like I had had another kid and been through it before. Yeah. So now that you're saying that I'm trying to remember what was really even different, but they were still allowed to like come to the house. So okay just, you know, being, being like essential. Yeah. 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 Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So we, we never really, um, or, you know, we went to, at that point we were living out of the district that we had open enrolled in because we live right on a County line. So it was a little bit confusing. So oh, yeah. I think most of the time I was driving to that building and then about a year and a half ago, we, we moved a whole three miles and now we're in the district that we had open enrolled in. Oh my gosh. That's so, Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you were telling us before we started recording how your school district was involved with early intervention right after he was born. Yeah. Our first couple like interactions with early intervention were through the district that we lived in at that point, which was just a smaller district, still very yeah. capable and everything. But we both work in the other town on the district that we're in now. That's confusing. I know. So that's why we opened enrolled. It wasn't anything against the smaller sure. district. But yeah, we, I think like literally the Day after his diagnosis, we got like a phone call from them and set up a meeting and they were at our house like the next week, you know, so he's like six weeks old and it's like, I'm sitting there like, okay, what are you guys going to be able to do for a six week old baby? But, you know, it's more at that point about educating the parents, but the way that I operate, I'm just like a doer. And like, when I get unexpected news or something to work through, like it makes me feel better to like gather information and do all this. So it was, yeah, it was kind of funny. I mean, they came over and they were like giving me the stuff and I was like, Oh, I did that. I did that. I did that. And she's like, you know, we're just going to hire you and send you to parents. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's so wild because, you know, obviously school districts have the ability to do more than what the minimum requirements. Like we always tell listeners, like the minute your kid turns two and a half, if you have any challenges or concerns, go to your school district, they can start assessments at that point, because that's what the bare minimum is. That's what the mm-hmm. law requires, but doesn't prevent school districts from doing more. And just, I don't think, I mean, for as long as I have been doing what we've been doing, I really have not seen any earlier than two and a half. And, you know, that's so amazing to hear that there are districts doing this because it makes sense. If you do everything you can for early intervention, it's only going to make the school district's lives easier when the child enters kindergarten, right? Because they're going to be more prepared. The parents are going to be more prepared. You're going to have a better kind of like village already, right? 
Yeah. And it's, I guess I didn't really realize how abnormal that is because like, and I should mention, I mean, we talked about this beforehand, but I'm in Minnesota just so listeners know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's literally birth to three and then it transitions over, but I can't imagine so much learning happens in that zero to three range. Like yeah. Cooper's barely past that. And I can't imagine not having had those resources for the first three years of his life and working with his deaf and hard of hearing teacher who's fluent in sign and obviously spoken English and yeah. yeah, having his teachers check in with me all the time and work with him during his, you know, little, he's not technically in preschool, but he goes to like an early education class twice a week. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, you know, in California, we have regional centers that supports kids zero to three and then 22 and above, but to qualify for regional center, it's somewhat limited. It's really limited to developmental disabilities and like autism is one of the primary. So not all kids qualify. And so there's, so obviously for, for those kids that do qualify, there is enough, uh, a number of services that can support the zero to three and doing that early intervention, but it's not a blanket. Hey, you have, you have a diagnosis of a disability. We're going to support you early intervention, no matter what that disability is. So mm-hmm. it, it is very nice to hear that in other locations, it's, you know, kind of being picked up as, you know, and I would assume the school district recognize that, hey, yeah, maybe this isn't something that like is used across the board as this, this early intervention through the school district, but it's something that they recognize that's going to be helpful for the student because it is, you're right, there's so much learning during those years. It's so important for those, you know, pre-skills before you get into schooling and you know, obviously we talk all the time about, we wish there was universal preschool across the nation. We're hoping that comes about soon. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess too, it's, there's differences, obviously, when you're talking about like a clear diagnosis versus like, you know, autism that often comes later. Yeah. So I guess that's worth keeping in mind, but regardless, I know we're lucky, like to have what we have here. I live in a town, it's literally, you know, 15,000 people. And so I was, just concerned because we're, we're about two and two hours outside the twin cities where there are more resources and even right. like schools for kids yep. who are deaf and hard of hearing. And so at the beginning I was like, you know, Oh, I just wish that we would be able to offer him that. And like moving just wasn't really on our radar. We're very established here. And, you know, ever since I've been connected with our team, I have not worried. There's actually like four or five other kids in the district who are implanted uh, okay. and he's a combination of sign language and spoken language, which is pretty amazing for a district of the size that there's that uh, many. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to touch on something that you had said that, you know, you're the type of person that kind of just like wants to get into something so that mm-hmm. you can process it. One of the reasons why we were really excited to have you on is because you are a children's book author and <laughs> you kind of saw a need, right, for the book that you ended up putting together. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that process and kind of what led you to create such a wonderful picture book? Yeah. So I've always been a book lover. I mean, my mom read to us from a young age and I always knew that I would want to carry that on with Coop. And, you know, the, the couple of days, weeks following his diagnosis, we actually, you know, went to Barnes and Noble and like browsed around the kids section, kind of looking for, you know, just books about inclusivity and sign language and like just that kind of topic. And there were some for sure, but there weren't like a ton. And so fast forward a little bit, I wrote basically like a nonfiction book for parents of kids with hearing loss. Um, 
just kind of detailing our journey and like everything to expect. And that came out like a year after his diagnosis. So in 2020. And after that, I had a couple of people kind of like, oh, are you, what do you think about writing a kid's book? Like, has that ever been on your radar? And it really wasn't at that point. Like, I didn't know how to write a kid's book. I, I'm used right. to writing very, very long winded and like, but I had a friend in high school who had actually just worked with a publisher out of the Twin Cities. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to feel it out. And I connected with them and it just felt like it felt right. Um, and so we started that process. It's been probably a year and a half, two years, um, since I first connected with them, the book came out in March and it's called the ABCs of inclusion. So essentially each letter of the alphabet is a different child's name and each child has a different diagnosis. So it was important to me to do like that person first approach. So like, yeah, yeah. C is for Cooper instead of like D is for deaf. Right. Right. Yeah. So it was, you know, once that idea came to me, it was a matter of finding the kids that fit and making sure that I was representing, you know, different ages and diversity and different diagnoses. And so it was really like a big puzzle to get that all to work. And social media, I mean, made that possible. I don't even know how I would have done it without social media. And you're so vulnerable, right? On social media, like you have been sharing this entire journey. And I think that's one of the great kind of cornerstones of social media is that you can really find a community if your immediate like physical community doesn't have anybody with a child that has those needs right I I feel like it can really connect us more right oh yeah as like so much else but like I feel like for you that really holds true 100% I mean that's why you know those first couple weeks I was finding everything I could on like Instagram and parents who, you know, have kids with implants. And it's just been a crazy journey because the one person that I really like clung onto and followed and like read everything was her name's Christy. And she has a little, little girl named Charlie with implants. And so fast forward, we actually co-host a podcast now for parents of kids with hearing loss. Like, and it's just crazy to think about, like, we literally met on Instagram three years ago, never met in person still. Yeah. And so it really does just give you that connection that I think otherwise would either be slower to find or almost non-existent for some people. Oh my gosh. Like that is just incredible because especially like three years ago, (laughs) you know, we Mm -hmm. were were just getting into the pandemic. So it was really like just an isolating time in and of itself for so many, but then, and I mean, you had said, and I don't know when you connected with the other kiddos in the area, but yeah, just to be able to have somebody that was putting it out there, right. So that you could kind of get your bearings about you. And I think, um, on your website, you have a reference to, we've talked about this poem. I think it's like, welcome to Holland or Mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, like this is just like everything right for a parent that is just finding out about a diagnosis or, or, you know, just kind of coming to terms with the picture of the child they had in their mind and and the child that is in front of them. I wanted to kind of go back to the book and, you know, have you, it obviously already came out and it pretty much available wherever, right? So if you can shop local or, or is it most, what, 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 it, the, the local aspect obviously depends. Bookshop.org is carrying it too. And they actually, so that's online, but they support um, independent bookstores as well. So oh, some people prefer that. Obviously it's on Amazon. I have a list on my own website too, which is bethandcoop.com that kind of lists every option. Oh, excellent. And when, what has been kind of the, 
reception have people, I mean, I think you had a Kickstarter and you, you guys raised yeah. so much more than like, it's, I feel like I'm answering your question that it's like <laughs> way needed, but like, I kind of wanted to hear from your perspective, how people have been receiving it and you and, and your story. Yeah. It's been more than I could have anticipated. Honestly, I had set out for that Kickstarter. So I independently published, which means that I was responsible, you know, financially for everything, which is, wow. it's not a cheap endeavor. And so a lot of people who do that end up doing some sort of crowdfunding towards the end to kind of prepare for the printing process. Cause that's where it gets really expensive. And so I set out to do that. I think I started in August last year and it ran for a month Then I had a goal of like 10,000. It ended up raising 65, I think, wow. you know, and it was overwhelming too. Cause it's like, then you have to fulfill all those orders. It was a really crazy whirlwind and it's just kind of continued to be that way. And I, I'm so grateful that it did raise that much because honestly, we've basically had to put all of that into reprint, like printing more copies. So yeah, the initial 9,000 are nearly sold out. We have 5,000 more being printed. I haven't really even been doing much as far as a launch strategy and like post launch because of that, like it's just kind of carried itself. Yeah. Well, yeah. Too like, there's so many, and I'm a pandemic mom too. I had my son in September Mm -hmm. 2020 and there's so many of us that like, I mean, there was a boom, right. And we're all kind of looking at the books that we are reading to our children in a little bit different way. And we've had a number of guests where we've looked at, you know, their children's books and it really, I think we've realized it is so important for our kids so early on to be reading books that are inclusive and that they're not just learning about the same things. Like, sure. Some of the books that we read as kids that are beloved books, like it's great to have in the kids library, but it's more than just about reading now. And I think we've recognized that because if we're going to push for an inclusive society and acceptance and understanding with our kids when they're older, we have to start young. So I think there is such a demand and and want for books like this for our mm-hmm. kids. And what I really tried to keep in mind too, when kind of, you know, deciding what to include in it was I wanted a mix of like, you know, disabilities that you can see and disabilities that you can't, because I think yeah. that's important for children too, to recognize. So it really covers a wide range and it's amazing to watch Cooper like go through it on his own and read it and be like, A is for Arthur and Arthur can't see because he's blind. Like he'll literally repeat these things now or like talk about them. And even the some of the bigger words and like anxiety is one that's in there. Autism, obviously, cerebral palsy, just spina bifida. Like I tried to really pick some of the more common ones that kids might encounter, but there's also some very new ones. And so adults that read it are like, I actually learned a lot. And that was a challenge actually to bring it down to like a kid's level. Some of these really complex, like, right. You know, that right. deal with chromosomes and DNA. And so it was probably the hardest thing I've ever written. <laughs> wow. Well, good. Well, I was going to say like, that's the best way, right. To be able to try to explain it. Like you're talking to a child um, so that it's kind of digestible for any person. And we commend you. Like it's such an amazing idea and, for us, it just is so helpful to be able to have it as a resource and like not this overwhelming binder that you get right when you get the <laughs> It's like, hey, like take a look at this. This is something that your kiddo might encounter um, because at the end of the day, like there is no normal child. There is no typical child, even though that those terms are so often heard at IEP meetings. And mm-hmm. like, it's just like, no, like we don't need 
the labels, but if we need to label it, okay, Arthur, you know, has a hearing impairment or whatever, right? So anyway, we're just so grateful for your time, Beth. Thank you so much for coming on. So people can check out your website. What was your website again? Bethandcoop.com. So it's all my social handles too are Beth and Coop. And he is adorable. Like your family is (laughs) so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and for taking the time to come onto our podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And I hope it helps somebody out somewhere. Oh, absolutely. All right, listeners, we will talk to you next week. Hang in there. (laughs) Bye. Bye.